0: The Knight, shrouded in black atop a lone pillar, lights his candle and reaches for a book. Fearless in battle, fearless in literature, he takes in all the wonders of the world, right there in one spot. In the same way, and without hesitation, we dissect and decipher classic and modern texts in a fun, insightful, and easily accessible manner. Join me, the night Reader. As we travel through these wonderful and sometimes obscure worlds in a podcast meant for people of all ages and levels of reading. Welcome, my name is Dylan, I'm the Night Reader. Today we'll hear music, we'll listen to our characters, move through the story, and figure out what's going on in the story, and discuss it. I hope you've all been following along with the first two episodes, where we've been taking a look and listen to Herman Melville's Moby Dick, or The Whale. Before we start, I'd like to thank you all for the initial support it's been great so far. You have been so kind and supportive of what I've been doing. This is something that I feel so strongly for and share a passion with others is something I dream about. I'd love to talk more about myself in future episodes, but teaching and sharing with others is something I truly care about and love to do. Along with the arts I'm interested in, such as authorship and musicianship, It's very important to me to do something that feels important and potentially has some sort of impact on others. It's been a long time since I've felt so great about something and it's been awesome so far. I'm learning a lot. Quickly, I'd like to say thank you to Sarah S, Roseanne W, Corey, Liam M, Melissa M, Mr. and Mrs. C and all others who have left kind comments to me so far. Thank you. We've been taking a look at a lot of the philosophies of Herman Melville, a subject that is ever present in his works. His first few chapters introduced us to a couple of main characters, and he also shown us the complexity of his writings. In only just a few short chapters, we have heard allusions and references to the Bible and other texts, as well as other historical societies mentioned. Uh, We've read through some intense wording and taken a deeper look at the way he writes. It's truly an artistic way he has about him. Uh, The closest one can get to painting as a writer, I'd say. In some way, surpassing in imagery even what the greatest artist can portray. His way of writing is true brilliance, and so sweet to ingest. If you are interested in reading something like this, and have a hard time at first, most people may. Well, shorten your self-expectations. Take in one chapter at a time. Maybe a page. Maybe a paragraph. Maybe just a sentence. Read it. Think about it. Sleep on it come back to it and put it into terms you can grasp. You can, we all can. Reading and perceiving are quite different. I get that feeling sometimes when I don't process what I just read. Do you guys ever get that feeling? It's not just you. You reread it 10 times and it still doesn't click in your mind. Well, take a break or ask a family member or friend what they think the passage means. Or, message me on Facebook, let's have a discussion about your perception of the passages. Maybe yours is entirely different from mine, and that's the beauty of it. This was a typical way of writing for this period in time. Not all wrote this way, but a good amount. Like I've mentioned in prior episodes, society was vastly different 150 years ago. That's something that should go unsaid, but still. It's too easy, and understandably so, to view this work through a modern, translucent lens. But, on the other hand, these are humans just as we are, and arguably more so, since they lived in a far less convoluted society, one more true to our roots as carnal human beings. Well, all of our perceptions of these readings will differ, but I'd recommend to try to your best to keep a very open mind when it comes to Herman's concepts and outlooks. Like I've mentioned before, someone reading this book who is uneducated on religious materials will have an entirely different experience than someone who has attended Bible school their whole lives. There's nothing at all wrong with either side. It's just something that we observe and should be aware of. It's the same thing when it comes to inspiration another topic I'll dive into deeper in a future episode. But when one has so many inspirations as an artist, it's questionable that your creativity could be convoluted by so numerous a ringing note. In simpler terms, would the artist draw, write, or sing what they have that they had never been inspired by another artist prior to them? Would they be an artist at all? Or... Is artistry something that is divine in all of us? Something you're born with? We'll talk more about that in the future, but it's something to keep in mind. Looking back at the story we're looking at, this book can be taken literally, even with even with its allegories. Sure, it could be. Many parts can be taken as a satirical look on the economy of the time, or a hero's journey, or maybe just a simple sailing story about revenge. The entire novel can be illustrating the theme of manifest destiny, a predetermined future, or the possibility of your future being entirely in your own hands, swayed by your own decisions. Are we truly in control of our destinies? Or is your future already penned? Looking deeper, it could be an argument of those concepts existing at all, This is what Herman Melville wants of his readers, to think about this, to wonder, maybe never come to a conclusion. That is something that is truly amazing about his works, his ability to weave together a story that can make you think in such a way. And he so masterfully led his writing voyage to fruition. How could he have been aware of all this while putting such wonderful words in succession? That question goes through my mind every time I read him. It gets deeper and deeper. Well, we'll try our best to make sense of it. And like I've said before, I'll give you my perception and leave you to your own perceptions of the story as you journey through it. We'll see some great societal gaps in the coming chapters, some friendships blossoming, much more information about our characters, and eventually some great foreshadowing. Uh, We'll see a bit more of Nantucket and its surrounding areas before we set off to the ocean. These early chapters are lighthearted in tone mostly, occasionally delving into very foreboding passages. It's a playful balance, and Melville does as well. And yet, with these societal gaps, we find ourselves very in touch with Ishmael. He seems to be that curious adventurer inside of all of us, the honest and true smart and fair kind of man or woman we all want to be or want to know. The counterpane. The quilt. The bedding. Ishmael is waking up in a bed next to Queequeg, your friendly neighborhood tattooed cannibal who gave us quite the scare in the chapter before. We felt great energies from Q and we feel he's a good guy. Heck, we trust him enough to sleep beside him even though he smokes in bed, and out of a tomahawk, nonetheless. Well, Ishmael is sure that his sleep would have not been so sound had he been truly sleeping next to a monster. He slept in peace and now is waking up, with Queequeg's arm lovingly draped over him, his tattoos blending in with the intricate designs of the patchwork quilt. So, when Ishmael feels this sensation, does he jolt to move away? No. He lay still for a few moments in the strong arms of the naive uncultured foreigner. He remembers something that happened to him as a child, the memory brought on by the weight of Q's arm over him. But this isn't just a memory, it's an enveloping deja vu, and Ishmael flashes back for a moment to his childhood. Ishmael, as a small boy, tries to climb up the inside of the chimney. Gets in big trouble by his stepmother. She drags him up to the bed without supper at two o'clock in the afternoon, in June. The poor kid undresses as slowly as possible, trying to kill time. He's essentially on a day-long timeout, sent to bed without any dinner or anything, a customary punishment for a child at the time. He lay in bed, small Ishmael, and counts out 16 hours he'll be laying there at least, until he will be allowed to leave the room. His back aches just thinking about it. The bright sun shone through the window. Voices flew about the house. Carriage wheels rolled by outside. He creeps back down the stairs in his socks and begs his stepmother to give him a beating instead. Anything at all would be better than being sent to bed for 16 hours in broad daylight. She was very stubborn, though. Ishmael says she was the best of stepmothers, and by saying that, he means she was the strictest. She sent him back up to his room. He lays there troubled for a few hours before dropping off into a nightmare of a slumber. Ishmael, as a child, slowly wakes some hours later. The day had slipped into night, however his room now seemed blacker than night, and he felt rigorously stuck in his bed, his arm laid out across the counterpane, or the quilt. He felt the phantom weight of a heavy hand over his, and he seemed to sense a supernatural entity sitting at the edge of his bed. He lay there for hours, unable to move, never daring to move even an inch. He eventually wakes up the next morning, wondering whether it was all a dream or reality. For months and years after, even till this day, Ishmael wonders about that occurrence. This feeling was so similar to that, but once you've taken away the fear, what of this then? What was Ishmael's vision as a child? What was sitting at his bedside? Was it somebody mourning over his future? A guardian angel? A phantom? Just a dream. Ishmael does not know, but he remembers that feeling well. Such a strange one, one that he recalls is similar now, but as he's waking up still, his memories from the night prior come to him. And he tries to slowly get out of bed. However, Kuikweg's arm is clamped down tight. Ishmael calls it a bridegroom clasp, a matrimonial sort of way he was being held by him. It's really quite endearing and sweet to read, these two men, so different from each other, starting to develop a friendship. Still though, Ishmael wants his space. He's clamped tight in Q's bear hug. He rolls over, only to be face to face with a tomahawk, tucked snugly at Q's side. Ishmael calls out and grunts at Q. Q wakes, rubbing his eyes. He looks at Ishmael and remembers him. They're in a bit of a stare off. Ishmael sits in bed and Q ends up getting up to dress first. Now, this is something that, at the time, was quite polite to do for a stranger you'd be bedding with. Getting up, dressing first, and leaving, allowing the other person to dress and bathe in full privacy. Well, Queequeg was obviously civilized enough to do this for Ishmael, as he probably sensed Ishmael's wariness. Ishmael particularly praises this action because even as he rudely stared on, his curiosity getting the best of him, Q, dressed and went about his toiletries silently and respectfully of his roommate. Ishmael simply sits in the bed and observes. Now we see the humorous way Q gets himself dressed. He first puts on his tall beaver hat. Then without any pants or shirt, he grabs his boots. To Ishmael's amazement, queequeg, most likely believing he's being respectful in some manner crawled underneath his bed with his shoes in his hand and his tall hat on. By the sound Ishmael could hear, he could tell that he was struggling to put on his boots under the bed, in private, hidden from Ishmael. For what reason why, Ishmael could not imagine. When I read this page, I find myself with a huge grin on my face. The description of Q in his transitional state neither caterpillar nor butterfly. If he were truly a savage, he would not even bother to wear boots on his feet at all. But if he were truly and fully civilized, he'd surely know better than to crawl under the bed in that ridiculous way and put his boots on in private. The whole scene is a great dynamic concept to think about. We see more of Q's outlandishness here. I'd like to read an excerpt directly from the book I quote, At that time in the morning, any Christian would have washed his face, but Queequeg, to my amazement, contented himself with restricting his ablutions to his chest, arms, and hands. He then donned his waistcoat and taking up a piece of hard soap on the washstand center table, dipped it into the water and commenced lathering his face. I was watching to see where he kept his razor when lo and behold he takes the harpoon from the bed corner slips out the long wooden stock unsheathes the head wets it a little bit on his boot and striding up to the bit of mirror against the wall begins a vigorous scraping or rather harpooning of his cheeks thinks I Queequeg this is using Roger's best cutlery with a vengeance Afterwards, I wondered the less at this operation when I came to know of what fine steel the head of a harpoon is made and how exceedingly sharp the long straight edges are always kept. The rest of this toilet was sh- soon achieved and he proudly marched out of the room, wrapped up in a great pilot monkey jacket and sporting his harpoon like a marshal's baton. Unquote. Now we heard... Uh, Ishmael mentioned Roger's best cutlery when he sees Ishmael shaving his, um, excuse me, he sees Queequeg shaving his face with uh, the harpoon. Um, Roger, he's most likely referencing uh, Joseph Rogers, a man who made razors in the early 1800s. And I think he founded uh, like a razor company or something like that. Um, So after that that cool little scene there, um, we're down at breakfast. We see Ishmael come down the stairs to a grinning landlord. No hard feelings, Ishmael thinks to himself, even though he knows the landlord was messing with him a bit. Well, let him have a laugh. A good laugh is a good thing, a rare thing. So let him if he's better the man for it. Now in the fourth paragraph of chapter five, called Breakfast, there's a great description of all the boarders in the inn, mostly whalemen, Some ashore for longer than others, as Ishmael can tell by the complexion and the tanness of the skin. The following passage is about a socially awkward breakfast of strangers. In a way, the description is very relevant and familiar in today's society. Yes, they are all strangers somewhat, but they are all sailors, all of similar tastes and interests. Ishmael expects to hear some good whaling stories from these hungry harpooners and sailors, but for some reason, every man remains silent, seems almost embarrassed. These sea dogs who have slung many a harpoon at a great whale, without a hint of bashfulness, now sat in awkward silence. All except, of course, for Queequeg, sitting at the head of the table by chance, He violently, yet somehow politely, reaches across the table with his harpoon, pulling the rare beefsteaks across the table to him. He seemed to not have a care in the world as he ate, finished, left the table to the sitting room, and took a smoke on his tomahawk pipe. Soon after breakfast, Ishmael departs for a morning walk. We're met with descriptions of uh, the surrounding areas of Nantucket in the daytime. All of its beauty, its whaling reputation, its fine-tuned sailors, and all of its odd inhabitants. With all of its seafare coming and going and being such a central outlet to the Eastern world, many men and women of different cultures roamed its streets, even inland. Ishmael describes savages on street corners as he walks towards the wharf. He also describes to us the weekly arrival of young lumberjacks and farmers from New Hampshire and Vermont, all ready for glory in the fishery. He pokes fun at them a bit, saying how funny it is to see them arrive. He calls them green, as green as the green mountains of the land they came from. He even mentions the way they're dressed, how a countryman joins the whale fishery and they order their garments adorned with buckles and straps, shiny bell buttons for the coats. Well, how these young men have no clue that at the first howling wind at sea, these straps will burst. I quote Ishmael directly here, quote, Ah, poor hayseed, how bitterly will burst those straps in the first howling gale, when thou art driven, straps, buttons, and all. "...down the throat of the tempest." He tells us of the bony backcountry, and describes the towns. He admires the beautiful gardens, diamonds in the rough to him, saying that all this beauty seems to have magically risen out of the sea. We learn how important whales are in this region. Much of the Western world's whale oil, which was used for many things back in that day, comes from this area. It's plentiful on the island of Nantucket, so much that people say Nantucketers burn candles all night long, recklessly. He even describes the beautiful woman of Nantucket, who bloom like roses, but never wilt. Even in the coldest winter do their cheeks remain rosy. It's a gorgeous description from Herman. It's cloudy outside. Ishmael comes to a whaleman's chapel one that every fisherman makes a Sunday visit to before boarding a whaleboat. As Ishmael enters into the gloomy silence, he sees a small gathering of sailors and sailors' wives and widows. The storm outside is growing, enough to be heard from indoors. He notices that each silent worshipper seemed to be purposely seated away from each other. I quote, as if each silent grief was insular and incommunicable." A few tablets in the wall behind the pulpit, memorials to dead sailors, written by their sisters and widows, and surviving shipmates. Ishmael seats himself in the back and happens to see Queequeg seated down to his right. He seemed a bit unfazed as he can't read the descriptions on the wall. Ishmael describes to us the horrid feeling of watching these grievers, reading those tablets that refuse resurrection, bleeding their old wounds afresh. What we read next is Ishmael's inward reflection on his beliefs and his outlooks on death, and his despair and thoughts of the men who died before him without a trace. How those whose loved ones have passed on and are buried, how they stand among flowers to grieve, and have a sense of finality, at least. But the terrible desolation in knowing these men lost at sea or pulled into the depths of the ocean by a whale, their bodies never return home. There's nothing to grieve over but these tablets. It's a very sensual and human description, a feeling many will relate to. He also points out ironically how we grieve so terribly for somebody we love who we believe is now at peace. How we want to bring back those who have passed, but how we also know, obviously, that's it's not possible when it goes against the laws of nature. It's just plain wrong. We're asked to think about all these things. The passage ends with Ishmael stating that he's not afraid of death. He reads the marble tablets. He knows the same fate may fall upon him, but somehow he feels all right. He feels at peace with himself and his circumstances. He tells us that he believes we have all mistaken the matter of life and death. He believes his shadow, his soul, is his true being. He believes that in looking at the world through a spiritual lens, we as humans want to believe we have it all figured out, the spiritual and religious aspect of things. But do we really, or are we misconceived? Is our lens fogged up? Ishmael says, take my body, take it. It is not me and three cheers for Nantucket. Take my body when you will, but my soul will always remain intact. A very revealing passage for Ishmael. Maybe Herman Melville is telling his true beliefs in this chapter. What does it mean to you? Do you feel the same as Ishmael? It's definitely something to ponder about. The storm outside grows louder still, and in enters the priest, a man called Father Mapple by most sailors. He himself had been a sailor and harpooner in his youth, and in his later years dedicated his life to the ministry. Ishmael's description of Father Mapple is that of a strong old man, one that glowed in spite of all his wrinkles. Interestingly, he had no umbrella, just a huge hat and jacket that were entirely soaked. He removes them and hangs them up in a corner. He slowly approaches the pulpit, the raised platform near the marble tablets. It's taller than most and enclosed on top. There are no steps to climb up as usual, but instead a hanging rope ladder similar to those on a ship. In fact, the whole pulpit seemed to be built in the likeness of a tiny ship. Behind it hung a painting of a ship in a storm, and in the distance of the painting, an angel shone a light down on the ship, guiding it to a bright blue island. The priest, Father Maple, climbs up the ladder and, once atop his bolt pulpit, he pulls the rope up with him, leaving him alone on his little island of a boat To provide his sermon. We are asked by Ishmael, or rather Herman. We're asked, what could be more full of meaning? All of that had just been described. The pulpit, in a spiritual way, leads the world, guides us all in doing good with its sermons. From there, God's blessings or wraths are emitted, and the front of the ship, or pulpit, takes the biggest blow from it, For there it is we pray to God and ask for favorable winds on our journeys. The world is a ship ready to depart. We're all its passengers. And yet never has a voyage that has gone before us been complete. This whole passage introduces us a bit more to Herman's extensive style of writing. His sentences often run in a poetic fashion It also shows us a lot of Herman's insight. I wonder where and when Herman Melville first thought on these subjects. Not only is he aware of all of these things, but he's able to construct a viable story around his philosophical way of writing. It's a very dark and telling passage that helps us relate more to Ishmael. So Father Mapple, up on his pulpit in the form of a boat, He commands everyone, as if he's the captain of a ship, to gather more sensual in front of him. He folds his large hands across his chest and offers a deep prayer. He then begins to sing a hymn, one that all joined in on. Let's take a listen for a moment.
1: The ribs and terrors in the whale Arched over me a dismal gloom, While all good sunlit waves rolled by And left me deepening down to doom. I saw the opening maw of hell With endless pains and sorrows there, Which none but they can feel can tell, Oh, I was plunging to despair. In black distress I called my God When I could scarce believe him lie He bowed his ear to my complaints No more the whale did me confide With speed he flew to my relief As on the radiant dolphin born Awful yet bright as light it shone The face of my deliverer God My song for shall ever reward that terrible and joyful hour, I give the glory to my God, his all the mercy and power.
0: The next chapter is spoken by Father Mapple, and it describes in very great, gorgeous detail the story from the Bible, Jonah and the Whale. A story that, will be present in the whole book of Moby Dick and relates to it in many different ways. Um, It's masterfully written, this chapter, and astoundingly depicted through the verse of the preacher. It's an absolute must-read. Throughout the sermon, Father Mapple points out all the meanings and connections to the story. He tells of Jonah, a fugitive seeking passage on a boat fleeing his duty to preach God's word. And once granted passage by a sea captain who sinfully accepted Jonah's bribe, he feels trapped in his quarters out at sea. His torment and premonitions of being trapped in the belly of the beast are always present. The father's language here is very foretelling. Uh, he, He speaks mostly in analogies and metaphors, drawing parallels between the story of a marina's journey and also beyond the story, making connections to the book itself. He depicts a terrified Jonah on a boat in a thrashing storm at night, the moon full on his face of fear. He admits to those above deck that he's the reason for the terrible storm at hand. His wrongdoings have led the entire ship to sure death. He's tossed overboard, and at that moment he's taken by the jaws of a gigantic whale. truly repents for all his wrongdoings, for running from his fate, from his calling that God bestowed upon him. After admitting his wrongdoings and realizing God all-powerful, the whale rises and spits him out on the land. The priest asks the sailors in front of him not to replicate Jonah's sins, but to replicate his fullness in repentance. His telling of the story is a way of him warning to always follow your calling and do what's right. He's speaking to himself in some ways. He also warns about the possibility of not following your duty or being selfish and leading others along a surefire path, a bad one. All the while, the storm's thrashing out behind him. He seems to be taken by some unnatural force in his violent tellings. He then goes goes on to shout an inspirational type of speech at everybody telling of his woes as a preacher and his calling to do what he does, as it pains him in some ways to be a pilot prophet. It calls back to an earlier chapter where we met Bulkington, the man who steers the main whaling vessel in this story. One of the good men that will be led down a dark path, all for the selfish vengeance of another. We will learn who, where, what, and when in the coming chapter. But as Father Mapple finishes his speech, he seems to revolt. He droops down as if a spirit has flown from him. He covers his face, he kneels, and says no more. So, the spouter Inn, ran by a man called Peter Coffin. Whales, death, the ocean, the story of Jonah and the whale. Jonah leading those around him to a terrible fate, though being forgiven eventually. We've got so much to look at just the beginning of the novel. Returning to the spouter inn from the chapel, friendly Queequeg sits near a fire in the common room holding his baby idol to his face and whittling away at its nose with his knife. He hums to himself. He then got up and grabbed a big book from the table nearby. Sat down with it in his lap and slowly counted the pages by fifties. Ishmael observes him curiously as he counts out loud every page and he turns until 50 pages, looks around the room, astonished, then goes back to count another 50 all over again. Ishmael's watching, half pretending to be looking at the storm out the window, but Q pays him no mind whatsoever. He is wholly absorbed in counting the pages. It was odd to Ishmael how indifferent he was towards him after the happenings the night and morning before. He physically describes his facial features behind the tattoos. His shaved head, all but the front pulled up tightly in a small knot at the point of his forehead. Looking at his eyes, Ishmael describes seeing traces of, quote, a simple, honest heart and in his large, deep eyes, fiery black and bold, there seemed tokens of a spirit that would dare a thousand devils," unquote. He realizes Q is quite the singular being. He never makes advances to enlarge his circle of friends, which is non-existent. Him, being so far away from his homelands, seems so comfortable and serene in his own simplicity. He seems to be in tune with some fine philosophy although although there's no doubt he's never heard of such a thing, such a word even. We propose the idea that perhaps to truly be a philosopher you cannot be aware of striving to be one because as soon as someone claims themselves a philosopher or proposes grandiose ideas, you assume they've lost their mind. It's a funny way of putting it, Herman. It touches on what I said in an earlier episode. To you, is Q aware of his own sereneness or naive in his own simplicity? Well, either way, he's a good man. He has some sort of calming effect on Ishmael. With the fire warming the room and the chilling storm outside, he decides to make a friend in Q. He pulls the bench closer to him. He makes some friendly advances towards him. Q doesn't seem to notice at first. Hey there. Kui Kui. I guess we haven't met formally, have we?
1: Last night, we had a bit of a tumble. I appreciate your kindness in the affair. What's that?
0: Are we to be best fellows again tonight? Yes. Here, let me see that book. I'll tell you a bit about the printed word. Q seems pleased that Ish wants to share the room with him again tonight. Ish does his best to teach Q about the book and its purpose. What the few pictures in the book meant. It caught his interest and from that they began talking about sights they've seen around town. Ishmael proposes a social smoke and out comes a tomahawk with a pouch of tobacco. He offers it to Ish and they pass it back and forth for quite some time. This communal smoke seemed to solidify their friendship, and after Q put his face close to Ishmael's and claimed them to be great friends, brothers, or as he literally says, married, in his country, meaning he's indebted to him. He'd gladly die for him if need be. Now, if this was simply a countryman, A friendship so sudden would be something to be distrusted. But in a simple savage like Queequeg, these rules don't apply. It's great to see this bond started, a great brotherly love that is something we all feel at times in life, but are sometimes ashamed of, or maybe feel like we shouldn't feel due to certain sigmas and social views. But human is human, man or woman, though different biologically are, spiritually the same a man can love a brother just as he loves his wife a different love entirely yes but a love just as strong to love another person man or woman to be close with someone in a friendly way like that shouldn't be a thing that we're afraid of and be certain that back then the stigmas were quite different and i believe it was much easier for brothers and friends humans to show each other that love They head up to the room, and Q offers the embalmed head to Ish as a present. Pulling out a huge tobacco pouch, he digs out $30 in silver, lays it out on the table, and divides it equally, pushing one of the piles towards Ishmael. He tries to refuse, but Q puts them in his pocket. What a sweet gesture. He goes about his evening prayers as the night before. Ishmael gets the feeling that Quee Craig wants him to join, but he knew that this was a religious and personal act. He was a good Christian. So how could he unite with this doll through worship? But what is worship, he asks himself. He comes to the conclusion that worship is to do the will of God. And what is God's will? To do to fellow man what you would have fellow man do to you. Well, Queequeg is Ishmael's fellow man, his friend. And what would Ishmael want of his friend? To join him in his Christian form of worship. Therefore, he must unite with Queequeg in this spiritual activity. So he helps kindle the shavings, helps prop up the idol, offers it a burnt biscuit, Q bows before it a few times, and afterwards they get into bed. They're quite content with themselves and the world, and lie together and chat for a while. They feel quite comfortable together. They nap a bit, Queequeg occasionally throwing his legs over Ishmael. They aren't cuddling, but they're just enjoying each other's company. It was a different time back then. It's not Ishmael's case, but imagine being alone for a long amount of time. I'm talking years. Just the company of another human. Just someone to talk to, doesn't matter who, man or woman. Just somebody to be around. It's a great thing, something probably not so common back then. So that's what they do. They enjoy each other's company. They chat, they wrap themselves from the cold in their blankets, and after a long while, they're both ready for a smoke from a tomahawk pipe. Although Ishmael had been fearful of smoking in the bed the night before, he feels quite the opposite now, somehow. There's an amazing line here. I'll read it for you. Quote, they feel quite at peace as they smoke in bed, quietly passing the tomahawk back and forth. Ishmael, very content to the hospitality and experience of sharing a pipe and a blanket with a real friend. Unquote. It's an awesome friendship they've sparked. The smoke hangs over them and Q begins speaking in his broken dialect about his homeland. Ishmael listens intently, and although at the time he had a hard time understanding him, he now recollects it as well as he can for us in a short biography of Queequeg. Queequeg, native of a fictional island far to the southwest, one that's not down on any map, says Ishmael. He is of royal blood, royal in his country his father a king of sorts among cannibals, his family full of fierce warriors. A young Queequeg eventually sought passage to a Christian land on a boat that landed on his island. However, he was unable to, the ship being full and denying him passage anyway. But Q was determined. He paddled in a small canoe out to a passage in the sea he knew the boat would pass by to leave the island. He paddles like a flash out to the side of the huge boat, jumps off his canoe, climbs up the chains, and throws himself onto the deck, wrapping his arm around a metal bolt, swearing not to let it go, even if it meant he'd be cut down. The captain held a sword over Q's wrists, threatening him overboard, but he stood his ground. The captain, struck by his fierceness and stubbornness and wild desire to reach distant lands, gave in they put him down in the boat and made a whaleman of him. His truest desire was to seek out a teacher of Christianity, to maybe find a new path of enlightenment for his people, find true happiness and contentment. Well, after some years, after seeing for himself how whalemen carried themselves, even the Christian ones, he soon saw that people of any religion can be miserable and wicked, just as his people are, sometimes even more so. This revelation led Queequeg to give his adventure up for lost. The world is wicked no matter which way you turn. And so he lived among the Christians and wore their clothes, tried his best to speak English. When asked by Ishmael if he would ever return to his homelands, he says most likely not. Although he is a king there, he feels his time among the Christians has stained him. It was an absolutely pure bloodline all 30 kings before him. But at second thought, he said maybe he would return one day, once he felt his soul clean enough. But for now, he was content to sail the wild oceans of the world. They had made a harpooner out of him. And instead of a kingly scepter in his hands, he wields that barbed iron, the way he marches about with it. Ishmael tells Q, well, he's a whaler as well or at least wants to be one, and that he desires to set out from Nantucket Island on a whaling voyage. Them being so close to the island, they could see it out their window. They decided they'll set out together, find a vessel and crew to join, sign on as whalemen and harpooners, and go sailing together. I can imagine them clasping hands and nodding to each other with smiling faces, their hearts full of adventure new friends, a new adventure on the horizon. The pipe finally died out. Queequeg embraces Ishmael in a brotherly manner. They blow out the light, roll away from each other and go to sleep. Adventures of the sea on their minds. So we've read some very strong passages, some kind of foreboding things going on. Um, We hear a lot about Father Mapple that's kind of the main um, the main point of this area of the story he's really giving us insight to the backstory, and he's telling us keep this in mind through the rest of the story because it does have stuff to do with it you're going to be able to make connections between Jonah and Moby Dick you know, obviously, not just for the whale but for intentions and uh, revenge and other themes that will go along with the book um, they meld very well together And it's very dramatic, that part in the scene, that part in the book, the way the storm outside is building up. And, you know, Father Mapple's getting more and more full of energy, almost as if if something's taken over him. Um, And he's giving advice not only to future sailors, but he's kind of also talking to himself. He has this way about him, this spiritual leading that he you know he knows he knows what's right and what's wrong basically he knows he needs to give the best advice he can because these men are going out to sea they come to him to pray you know they come to him to pray to god so he has a very strong sense of uh, you know place and and himself and stuff like that it's really cool to see um, how he does that Um, Ishmael's descriptions of the mourners is very chilling. Um, it's very telling, you know, if you ever go to a funeral, I hate to talk about this kind of sad stuff, but if you ever go to a funeral, you know, the groups of people, the families or the friends will all be sitting there, but there's always, always gaps in between the people. Or if you go to a mourning or wherever you will, even a church, um, always gaps in between i mean i guess people do that anywhere but in this story it's almost as if the people are grieving and no one else could understand their grief but them although they're all going through something very similar um each singular grief is incommunicable basically unable to describe to somebody else how you're feeling truly and that kind of isolates the person mentally and Physically, sometimes too, with you know, they don't sit directly next to somebody. It might also be out of respect for the other person who's grieving. We've got a wonderful backdrop to the beginning of this story. It's uh, sets us up with you know, hope and adventure and what's on the horizon, what's next. Uh, seemingly a great adventure, and it is one for sure, but it's a lot more than that, it's more than just a telling of events and happenings. It's it's truly a way of Herman Melville depicting his outlook on life and emotions and philosophical ideas. It's his way of putting them in a story and weaving that throughout it. And yet the story maintains solid It still tells as a regular story. If you just want to read this book as simple, you know, it's just an adventure, it does that very well. But if you're seeking more, if you're seeking to dig and to really decipher what's going on and what he's talking about, and not only just what he's talking about, but, you know, like what I talk about sometimes is what he was thinking when he wrote it or um, what he wanted you to feel the reader when he wrote it um, Herman Melville is definitely an author who wrote not just to write not just to tell stories but to get points across to um, make you think really make you think and I think when an author does that that's when they've truly reached the next level um, you know someone like Shakespeare or Edgar Allan Poe or Dylan Thomas um, Herman Melville's right up there with them because he makes, you, he makes you take a different kind of look at uh, the world around you. Uh, puts different ideas in your head. and He doesn't try to make you decide on one either. He always leaves it up in the open for you to kind of decide on your own. Um, that's what I love about his books. What an amazing few chapters we've heard from Herman Melville. It's been such an experience so far. Just the beginning of this novel We've had so much to think about until next week. We've seen a beautiful friendship blossom. We've got some background context and some chilling scenes in the chapel. Next week, we'll meet a very central character to the story, the other main character, and hear our most foreboding prophecies yet. I can't wait. Thank you all so much for listening. I'd love feedback and I'd love to hear your perceptions on what we've talked about today. Uh, This podcast was written, produced, and performed by Dylan C. Thank you again for listening. You can hear me on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, CastBox, or most platforms. I really need some ratings and things like that. I'd appreciate it, but I hope you've learned something today at least, or been inspired in some way. I'd rather have you pick up a book than leave me a comment. But like I said, I'd appreciate it. So go on, flip your pages. Drop your swords, pick up your pens and reading spectacles, let us read
1: on.